the Recovery Executive Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us here at the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. The Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in strategic marketing and growth for treatment centers. You can always learn more about them at www.circlesocialinc.com. Today, we are speaking with Mariel Huffnagel. She's the Executive Director of the Ammon Foundation, uh, the philanthropic wing of Ammon Labs. And so I wanted to have her on the show because we really haven't had anyone from a purely philanthropic perspective. And since it was also connected to a large corporation, I thought that would be very interesting to kind of talk about what their philanthropic objectives were, maybe how it tied into the business piece, all that kind of stuff. And then we get into a, a really interesting discussion around stigma, a uh, big goal of the Ammon Foundation. And I think Mariel herself is to reduce stigma in the space. I think it's a big goal of all of ours. So we have some really interesting conversations about maybe some more controversial perspectives on what reducing stigma looks like in the field. And I think um, some perspectives that maybe need a stronger voice or need to be heard more often. So let's listen to her and see what she has to say. Hi, Mariel. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Mariel Huffnagel. I'm the executive director of the Ammon Foundation, and I'm also a woman in long-term recovery which for me means that I've been alcohol and drug free since 2007. Awesome. So I think like a lot of us here in the recovery community for personal reasons, it sounds like. So what got you involved with the Ammon, the Ammon Foundation? So it's actually a funny, um, not like funny, haha, but a funny story um, that really is seemingly kismet, most likely. Um, so the Amon Foundation is a new foundation that just started about two years ago. Um, and two years ago, I was uh, a student uh, and employed and struggling to make ends meet. And when the, founda- the foundation had just started and I heard about it through, you know, the grapevine that there was this new foundation that was giving scholarships away to students in recovery Um And so I applied and it turned out that I was the first person to apply for a scholarship. Um, And when they called me to offer to award me the scholarship, they also um, asked me if I would come in for a job interview and recruited me to be the executive director. Okay, (laughs) that is a pretty interesting route to become the executive director of a philanthropic organization. So had you done any had you done any philanthropic work before that time? Uh, no, I, I I hadn't at all. Um, my previous life prior to the foundation um, was all in grassroots advocacy, uh, community organization, um, that type of work. Uh, however, I was at the time um, and have since graduated uh, studying public administration, focusing in nonprofit management. So similar tract, but not philanthropy. Um, focused at all. Okay. So I'm assuming there was a pretty strong learning curve there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, that journey? Um, sure. So 
there absolutely has been a learning curve. Um, it's a very different world. Um, and the responsibilities and the just in terms of like what my day to day job looks like, um, much of it is is very new to me. Um, and so it has really been about educating myself, uh, allowing and seeking out mentorship and coaching um, and really being teachable and moldable. Um, and luckily, I've, I've been tremendously supported by a phenomenal board, a phenomenal staff that I've been able to recruit and bring on, um, as well as tapping into colleagues and professionals who have significantly more experience with um, in the philanthropy three, excuse me in the philanthropy space as well as just at a E or C level position helping to to guide me. Okay, and can you tell us or give us a little bit of background on the Emin Foundation? So you know how much money is under management, how many scholarships you give away per year, that kind of thing. Sure. So the Emin Foundation is born out of corporate philanthropy, which I think is important to touch on when we're talking about philanthropy. Um, the addiction space period um, has had less philanthropy in general than other chronic um, relapsing preventable illnesses. Um, but very much so the philanthropy that it has experienced has been from families that have been impacted. There has been very little corporate philanthropy in the addiction space or the recovery space so far. Um, so Amin Labs in many ways is very much leading the charge. Um, Amin Labs is an addiction toxicology lab, uh, family owned and operated for 20 years. Um, and the so the Amin Foundation is born out of that. Um, and our mission really is to um, empower individuals in recovery, uh, remove barriers in an attempt to uh, foster individuals who are thriving in recovery. So building lives of purpose, worth, and meaning um, in effect to really almost serve as the greatest relapse prevention tool, right? Um, looking at how do we help people to build lives worth living um, and build lives uh, that catapult them into being, you know, members of society, members of their family, uh, leveling the playing field, you know, et cetera. Uh, and so we do that through two main ways. Um, and just to go back to, you, you asked kind of some budget questions. Um, the way the relationship with Ammon Labs works is that Ammon Labs funds all of our operating expenses. So my salary, the, you know, training, the projector, the, you know, the pencils and pens, the folders, the rent, all of those types of things. And then additionally, we have other donors and we, we have fundraising initiatives and all of that money goes directly into impact. Um, so what impact looks like is we have two core programs. One is scholarships, which we've already spoken about, but to define that, what that means is that we're giving away educational scholarships, not treatment scholarships, but scholarships for people to pursue education. Um, and data has shown and 
recovery data is and recovery research is limited at best, but some new emerging data out of SAMHSA does show that people who are um, pursuing education are less likely to re-engage in use at a pretty high rate, actually. Um, and so we define education broadly. Um, it's not just about the four-year college. It's equally, if not more so, about GED classes, vocational training, certificate programs, and county colleges, as that is more frequently the first stop or only stop for education for people in, in recovery. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Not everybody is meant to go to college. Um, and even for those who are, um, there's something very intimidating about starting at a four-year institution when someone's in the process of rebuilding their lives and is already dealing with some of the, the crippling and debilitating self-worth, self-esteem, shame, trauma stuff that oftentimes can accompany uh, you know, addiction and early recovery. Um, so that's the scholarship program. What it also is including, and this is stuff that we're currently in development is, um, excuse me, in development of, is building out wraparound services as well. Money is great and is a huge barrier, but money doesn't equal success, right? So we're looking at, uh, for January 2019, rolling out a professional mentorship program, rolling out a recovery coach program, having regular check-ins, and just other ways to support the people uh, that we are giving scholarship funds, really investing in people as a whole. Um, and the way we give out scholarships varies. Um, we have two main scholarships, and one is kind of to fill the gap, right? So it's $1,000 for someone who's already a student looking at... Um, looking at maybe they don't have money for books, maybe they don't have money for commuting, maybe, uh, you know, just to kind of fill the gaps. Then we have what we call as our impact scholarship. And the impact scholarship is for a new student, not necessarily someone who hasn't attempted school before, um, but someone who isn't currently enrolled. And an impact scholarship is a full scholarship. So covering all expenses um, for tuition. Uh, and then the last way we give scholarships away, which is important if we're talking about philanthropy, because one of the keys in philanthropy is collaboration and partnership, right, to maximize impact and maximize dollars. So um, we also partner with educational institutions, organizations, corporations to create uh, matching scholarship opportunities, right? So I'll give you an example of what I'm what one of those partnership looks like. So um, Sussex County College, um, their tuition is about $3,000. We have gone in $1,000 each. That way the student has some skin in the, you know, some skin in the game. They're putting about $1,000 towards their education. And then Sussex County College is putting $1,000 and we're putting $1,000. And then that also looks totally different depending on um, who the partner is. Um, so that's one program. Wow. The second program is our um, empowerment workshop program, where what we are doing is we are providing training surrounding life skills. Um, 
and going in primarily to nonprofit organizations, addiction treatment providers, and integrating into their clinical program so that their clients really have sort of this bridge between treatment and recovery um, so that when they get out, their, you know, their ability to navigate daily life um, is higher and there's a little bit of ease with skills that are oftentimes being overlooked, like budgeting or time management or study skills, et cetera. Um, so I know that's a mouthful, but that is kind of the two main ways we're looking at utilizing this money, staying in the space of how do we support people who already have begun their recovery journey. Um, so not prevention, not treatment, but really the idea of how do we support recovery. Okay. It's really great work that you guys are doing. You know, I've listeners have probably heard me advocate multiple times, but a lot of success and recovery comes from the life skills, purpose, meaning, happiness, hope, community, right? And it sounds like you guys are focusing on those elements of, you know, once you get started in recovery or as you get out of your treatment centers, you know, how do you find purpose and meaning? How do you find a meaningful place within society? Um, and how do you regain some of those life skills that, you know, you need to get by on your own? So really, really cool work. About how many scholarships did you guys give out in 2017? Do you know off the top of your head? Um, so I don't know what the number of scholarships I know in 2017. And again, 2017 was only about half a year of operating. Um, we gave over $40,000 in scholarships away. I know to date, so today is September 17th. Um, we, uh, that to date this year, excuse me, we've also given over $40,000 with the expectation of, um, of giving about $100,000 away this year. Um, remembering that both the fall and the spring semester disbursement falls um, in the second half of the year. Um, and um, and our, we have given scholarships to 53 individuals. We've given more than 53 scholarships. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but a handful of scholarship recipients have received renewal scholarships or monies for more than one semester or portion of their program. Um, so it's been more than 53 scholarships, but it's been 53 individuals. Okay. And so I know you guys are fairly new at this, but are you guys putting in tracking into place to see, you know, if the people that are provided scholarships are successful or if they're more successful in their recovery um, than maybe people that didn't enter, enter education, things like that? Sure. So it's still very early um, to have any sort of outcomes or impact data. We certainly have put into place, though, the... Um, uh, systems to measure that, developing um, a way to have, uh, obviously have points of contact data where we're able to see kind of how we are succeeding or failing at diversifying who's applying for scholarships, um, who's receiving scholarships, um, and really tracking all of that, or not even tracking, but extracting all of that demographic information and then on an impact quality of life, um, recovery outcome basis, what we have developed and have just started to implement is a opt-in. You obviously can't force people to, um, to allow you to follow up with them, um, but an opt-in program 
that tracks individuals at 30, 60, 90 days, and then one year, 18 months, two years, three years, four years, and five years, really looking to um, to look at the impact of our work um, and the impact that investing in someone, removing barriers, and specifically education has um, you know, on recovery and on general quality of life, um, as well as as we develop some of these wraparound services, right, like the recovery coaching, the mentorship, I think that the likelihood of having people remain engaged so that we can extract that data and um, have accurate and plentiful follow-up um, is as we start to implement some of these wraparound services, people are more likely to stay in touch with us. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you said that you're in a recovery yourself. Did you go through a treatment program at all? I did. Okay. I went to several treatment programs. Um, I was just curious kind of about your familiarity with the treatment space. And because you mentioned that you, you didn't see a lot of philanthropy within the space. And I was wondering, you know, if you had thoughts on maybe why that is. So I think there certainly is philanthropy through treatment centers or scholarship beds. Um, where we haven't seen, not enough, but there certainly is a good degree from alumni, from parents, um, and from providers themselves. Um, where we haven't seen philanthropy that, you know, that much is in the recovery space. Um, okay, I gotcha. Okay, yeah, because I was wondering, cause I say most centers that we work with have some kind of scholarship program. So I see you're making a distinction between people getting into recovery and the kind of post-recovery. Okay. No, right. So post-treatment, actually recovery support. Um, however, even if you look at the treatment providers and their scholarship programs, um, if you look overall at addiction, right, and if you look at addiction as a chronic preventable treatable disorder or disease, Right. And you compare that to other like conditions, cancer, asthma, CPD, um, diabetes, if you or or even other public safety, public health issues, for example, the AIDS crisis in the 80s, the dollars that have been invested in research, prevention, treatment and recovery um, is absolutely non comparable to the dollars that have been invested to any part of the continuum of care for addiction. That's really interesting. Huh? And why, why do you think that is? Well, I think that the symptomology of addiction looks different, right? Um, and the, the stigma surrounding addiction is severe, right? Uh, addiction is just now starting to be talked about and viewed as a public health issue, um, instead of like a moral failing, uh, I think in the 80s under President Reagan, alcoholism and addiction were very severely criminalized through the war on drugs. Um, and the difference between investing in something like a cancer or a diabetes that is well accepted as a medical condition versus something that is all too frequently viewed as a criminal or a moral issue, um, I think is what kind of fuels that disparity. Sure. And I think as we move more and more 
into becoming a forward-thinking society around addiction, and there still is a lot of work to be done there. But as we move towards that, I think people and organizations like Ammon Labs need to lead the way in this being a cause that's, you know, worth donating to. Sure. So, you know, you mentioned that a lot of centers offer scholarships. You know, are there other efforts that you think centers um, could be doing or should be doing to kind of diversify their own philanthropy? Um, so, yeah, sure. Specifically to um, addiction treatment providers, I think that um, there's, and I don't know enough, right? Um, but I certainly think that there's always a need to, um, to div- diversify And so I would urge any addiction treatment provider that's offering scholarships to kind of ensure that um, that scholarships are available and being offered to people of all ages, to people of all races, to people of all, um, you know, um, sexual orientation, gender identities, religions, etc. I also think and again, this is just kind of off the cuff answer is I would love to see addiction treatment providers also investing some of their philanthropy dollars or scholarship dollars um, towards supporting their alumni. So not just for treatment beds, but things, other barriers that may exist for somebody when they, after they have, you know, begun the recovery process in their treatment program, looking towards also philanthropically supporting their alumni, whether that's education scholarships or housing scholarships or, you know, whatever someone's need might be, that could be a real barrier um, or catalyst for someone to not be successful and thus a catalyst for someone to re-engage in use. Sure. Well, you mentioned, uh, obviously, you touched on stigma a little bit. You know, and that's obviously a big reason why, you know, I think I agree with you that we haven't seen the same amount of dollars and effort maybe um, focused on the, the struggle with addiction and even sometimes mental health issues in general. Uh, what are some ways that you think the recovery community to, could come together um, to combat addiction, you know, maybe better than it is now? Well, I think that. Um, One of the most, I think there are so many things that can be done, but the most important thing really is that people in recovery have to be talking about being in recovery. Um, And what I mean by that is that for so long, sort of people in recovery have, because people have been getting well for years on years on years. Um, However, people have gotten well and just sort of assimilated back into society um, and never uh, claimed a recovery identity. And so what that has in turn done is people don't see both sides of the coin. So the picture of active untreated addiction is very clear, right? (laughs) We see it on our Facebook feeds. We see it on the news. Time magazine. We see it it everywhere. Um, And if that's all we see, why would anybody ever invest in addiction? Because no one gets well. Yep, exactly. Like, so that picture of recovery has to be clearer. Those statistics have to be louder. Um, And people need to courageously stand up and share their recovery stories um, 
really shining light onto the fact that there is two sides of the coin, that recovery is real, it's possible, and people who suffer from addiction are worth investing in. Yep, I completely agree. I think that's one of our biggest challenges in the space, you know, but there that really goes back to the stigma piece a lot of the time, right? Because if you come out and you're very vocal about your recovery, well, you kind of still get that label that you are an addict. And because I think we have this belief in society that you're permanently having this problem, right? That you can't really get over it. It just kind of maybe goes into remission is often the idea. Then there's this assumption that, well, any time that person could slip and go back. Right. And I think that is part of the challenge that we have with getting people to be a bit more accepting, you know, and then you have your issues with, you know, maybe there was jail or felony convictions involved and things like that. So if that comes out, you know, people are looking at your background a little bit more deeply, which nobody really wants. Right. You want to move on. <laughs> so I think it's really, really a hard challenge. But I agree with you. We've got to start sharing recovery stories more. You know, Switzerland had a real interesting issue with that back in 99. Um, so late 90s, they were doing this thing where they were having the whole populace have a really negative view of people kind of struggling with addiction. And they did a whole PSA around it, focusing on a sober look at um, addiction is what they called it. And they there we go. And then they basically told people that, hey, no, look, people can get into recovery. They can stay in recovery. It's perfectly normal. And they saw a big change in the public perception. So I definitely agree with you on that one. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's difficult because I get it. They're like you said, stigma is alive and well, right? And so, like, people don't want to share until, you know, stigma has diminished, but stigma won't diminish until people share. So it's kind of like this catch-22, which is why kind of the call to action is, like, be brave and share anyway, so that in 5, 10, 20, 50 years, hopefully not that long, like, Bobby will be able to share and stigma won't even, there will be zero stigma, right? Like, but there, there has to be the, the brave who are willing to stand up and, and you know, experience perhaps some backlash, um, but do it anyway in order to move the needle. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. It is a challenge. I mean, you know, speaking for myself, like, it's hard to just be very blunt about it. You know, you're not going to meet someone the first time. You're like, oh, yeah, you know. I'm in recovery. <laughs> like, right. Not something you want to bring up right away, usually, um, for obvious reasons. So a uh, kind of controversial question I want to ask you uh, that we talked about a little bit before was, you know, so this idea of stigma in the field is strong. It's saying, okay, hey, we don't want to stigmatize addiction or people struggling with it. But then we have a very strong stigma around drug use, right? So, you know, really easy example is a lot of 12-step or AA meetings won't let people in that are using Suboxone or other maintenance drugs. Um, so we seem to have this contradiction where it's like, yes, we want to destigmatize addiction, but yet within our own recovery communities, we're still really strongly stigmatizing use. And I've always found that kind of interesting from a recovery perspective. And so I just kind of want to ask you, you know, what your thoughts were on, on that. Well, so I would, um, I would even take it one step further, right? I would take there's there's a there's a stigma around drug users, and then there's also a stigma amongst different pathways of recovery, right? Um, and so I think it's a tremendous issue that we aren't unified as a movement or as a body, um, 
Uh, and I also think that there is some some very deadly old ideas um, about recovery only being abstinence based um, and only these certain ways that people get well are considered recovery. And I think there's some really sort of antiquated draconian um, sort of uh, ideals that accompany quote unquote recovery um, that are not true in my opinion um, and that are probably killing people by the, you know, by the hundreds, if not thousands. Right. So, um, so it's a difficult question, but um, it's, it's absolutely true. How can we ask the general public to sort of lose stigma when, you know, we can't even be unified in our own, um, you know, amongst our own people? Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I think it's a really big issue in the field that we've got to address. I mean, how many centers, you know, kick people out for use, you know, and obviously there are nuances there, but if you're saying that addiction is this thing that really has a strong hold on someone, but then you kick them out for the very thing you're trying to help them on, (laughs) you know, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. You know, obviously. No, it's quite, in fact, it's quite ludicrous. And think about like, um, and again, the symptomology looks different, right? But if, think about if, um, you know, you had cancer and your cancer relapsed, right? You came out of remission and the cancer center was like, nope. Yeah, right. No. Like, no chemo for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no yeah. chemo for you. Like your your condition has exacerbated, so we're not going to treat you. Like it's just absolutely counterintuitive. I do understand that there are some safety concerns and that there it's, there certainly are things that need to be taken into consideration, right? Like, but maybe it's placement back in a detox and then mainstream entry into, you know, the addiction treatment center. Like there are ways um, and things to be done. I do understand, again, the symptomology is different. We need to, you know, we need to worry about, you know, safety of employees and other clients. You know, I, I do understand all of these sort of nuanced things that are only applicable for addiction. Um, But it's ludicrous to me, not just with treatment providers, but also with insurance carriers, right? Um, About the way benefits are are parceled out, you know, based on uh, the severity of one's, uh, you know, substance use disorder. uh, And we really only treat addiction acutely opposed to treating it um, in any other fashion. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, you know, even for obviously something like cancer, you can go back and see the doctor for your follow-up visits and that's part of your treatment process. Right. Whereas insurance doesn't provide for that with addiction. Great, great discussion. Uh, I think very important topics that we've kind of covered here. Something I want to bridge to a little bit is the business purpose piece. Um, so I know within the philanthropic world and the nonprofit world, it's often touchy to talk about a business connection. Um, but for me, I've always believed that business drives value, nonprofits drive value. You know, it's a similar goal, a lot of corporate social responsibility. So do you see for Ammon Labs, is there is there a business benefit to them running their philanthropic wing at all? I, I mean, I mean, a- absolutely. And um, obviously we need to, um, it's delicate, right? Because 
it never can be a sort of like quid pro quo, right? Um, however, uh, I, I just think it would generally be naive. Uh, and I also think it is a tremendously smart business move um, to, to not hope that there is, regardless of there not being direct quid pro quo, right? We're going to give you a scholarship, 15 people from your treatment agency, um, you know, scholarships if for to go back to school if you become our toxicology client. Like that is not philanthropy. That is inducement. Right. Right. Yep. Um, however, it would be naive to think that there isn't a hope um, of kind of branding the company in a light that is positive and selfless and engaged and um, compassionate and all of these things, which in term, in the long term, do absolutely affect bottom line. Um, and again, I don't work for Ammon Labs. I can't speak to numbers, but I absolutely know that their business has grown um, and that they are certainly um, of the belief that through the foundation and through their corporate philanthropy, um, that their bottom line has been affected. Yeah. I used to actually do a lot with corporate social responsibility. And when you start tracking the metrics, you actually do see very strong correlations between companies that have a stronger purpose driven. It's got to be relevant right to their business objectives. Um, but if they drive that, you see a better bottom line, you know, and, and my belief has always been, you know, so Circle Social is actually set up as a benefits corporation. So it's this kind of weird cross between a for-profit and a nonprofit. So we give 10% of our revenue away every year. Um, but the more that supports our business, right, the more we grow as a business. And then the more basically donations or charity we provide to various recovery organizations. And so it helps business grow. Then it helps your philanthropic wing grow. And it's a virtuous cycle, right? So that business and the philanthropy can work together. They're not at odds with each other. They're actually supporting each other. And I, I think that's important for people to understand. No, absolutely. Um, and I think that we have begun to see corporate social responsibility um, become like more sexy and more popular uh, over the last couple of years. And again, I think moving that into the uh, addiction space, both with relevant, you know, you know, fields that are ancillary to addiction, um, but also fields that aren't directly correlated with addiction. Because if you look at the, you know, addiction impacts every aspect of society. It, in, it impacts the economy, it impacts families, it impacts safety, it impacts healthcare, it impacts uh, everything that could potentially be impacted, addiction touches. Um, and so if we invest in ameliorating, you know, which is perhaps lofty, but at least diminishing the negative impacts of addiction, right? Every sector of business is positively impacted. Like when I got sober, I became a consumer. I have since bought a house. I have since bought a car. I have since adopted dogs. I have since go grocery shopping regularly. I sit all of, you know, I have insurance. I have all of these things, right? So um, all of which I'm a consumer of, which I wasn't a consumer of when I was actively using. Yep. 
Yeah, exactly. Helping the GDP. All right. <laughs> um, okay, great. Well, fantastic. I appreciate all of that. And just because obviously I'm a marketing guy and I see that you guys actually have a pretty strong social media presence at the foundation. I was just curious, you know, how do you use marketing and outreach to further your mission? What channels do you find most effective? That kind of thing. So we have specifically spent a large amount of time on our social media. So I'm glad that you noticed that. Um, and I think, you know, being slightly facetious, but not like if it's not on social media, it didn't happen. <laughs> and, um, and I say that jokingly, but I, I mean, as far as the outward public, it, no one knows all of the good work that we're doing unless we're talking about it. Um, and so there is, in my opinion, a real necessity um, for for growth and for you know the expansion of one's footprint and thus the you know as such the expansion of one's impact um, through through social media. Um, we have had the best or not even the best response. We have invested the most time in Facebook thus far. So we have had the best results from Facebook. We have since been trying to figure out Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn, which are all just a little bit more uh, non-familiar to us. Um, but the more we invest in each of those platforms as well, we are, we are seeing a return. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing the time that's invested in each, each of those. There's a valuable return on that. Yep. Yeah, I like that point that you mentioned about sharing recovery stories, you know, kind of connecting what we were talking about before. But, you know, so much of what I see on social media is this kind of negative image, you know, of like, oh, these horrible things are happening with drugs or we're sharing the Time magazine stories. And there's obviously room for that. Uh, but there's often not enough of even treatment centers sharing, you know, the positive stories about what's happening and, you know, sharing their alumni success. And obviously that that's, you got to be careful, right? You can't be using names or images without permission, but um, there's just such a big advantage, I think, to working better as a community to share the success stories that we're all having. Absolutely. So I really appreciate all the time. Is there any kind of final thoughts that you want to leave listeners with? Um, no, I think that we uh, very kind of comprehensively talked about a whole bunch of things. I guess I think just always my, my you know, my final parting message is that I hope that if I get across anything um, in any area of any message that I share, it's the idea that like addiction is a chronic, progressive, preventable and treatable condition that people like myself do recover um, and that addiction and specifically recovery are worth investing in um, in a myriad of ways, you know, financially, you know, politically, you know, it, etc. Sure. And so if people want to help support, you know, the Amon Foundation, how would they get involved? How they contact you? Sure. Um, so the Ammon Foundation website is uh, Ammon, A-M-M-O-N, foundation.org. Um, the foundation can generally also be reached by email or phone. So it's info, I-N-F-O, at Ammon foundation.org or 
3-5. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Muriel. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Appreciate you joining us here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and the Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Circle Social Inc., experts in strategic growth and um, marketing for treatment centers. If you want more information about them, visit www.circlesocialinc.com. Everyone have a good day.